Amen. So Psalm uh, 106 is the last uh, psalm in, the, in book four. You remember we've been saying that the book of Psalms is divided into five different books. It's a compilation of those five. Uh, and uh, so the book four of the Psalms is really Psalm 90 through 106. Um, and they, they're similar to all the other books, so we wouldn't expect them to stand out. But there's, there's one thing different. In book four, they, it kind of goes back and looks at the past. It looks at the way things were so that we can learn for the future. So uh, I'm going to, this morning, unpack Psalm 106, which is the last of those um, psalms in book uh, four. It starts out with praise the Lord, verse one. If you want to see that, it says praise the Lord. And it ends with praise the Lord. Actually, the King James is a better translation because it says, praise ye the Lord. It tells, it specifically tells who he's talking to. Praise ye the Lord. The reason that's significant is it's the word hallelujah. It's the Hebrew word hallelujah. Hallel, which means praise. U, which means you, you, plural, everybody, y'all. And then Yah, which is short for Yahweh. Praise ye the Lord. Starts with praise ye the Lord, ends with praise ye the Lord. It's just simpler to say hallelujah, hallelujah. And we're going to talk about everything in between the first hallelujah and the last hallelujah here in Psalm 106. Because he reflects back. Reflects back to the days long past. Foundational days. It's not history's boring, so I'm not interested in it. There are lessons to be learned in history. You know, how did we get here? Looking at history is helpful. It's that way in our faith as well. To look back at where we come from. Where were you the day before you met Jesus Christ? He turned your life around. Where were you the day before? What was it like? For me, it was like a dark cloud following me. Talk about someone being under a curse, being under a darkness, being blinded, not knowing where I'm going, one bad thing happening after another, that was me the day before I met Jesus. When I met him, the sun began peeking through the clouds. I wish I could say, the clouds all disappeared. But it wasn't that way. You see, I had sowed a lot of weed seeds when you sow a seed, you're going to reap a harvest. And I was sowing some bad stuff. And it took years before the good seed I sowed outnumbered the bad seed that I had sowed. But the one thing different, the day I accepted Jesus Christ is the light broke through the clouds. And I had hope. Every Christian who's given your life to Jesus Christ here today, you should have hope. It's not going to always be like this. It's going to be hope. Some of us are struggling this very moment, right now, this today, because you're going through a wilderness experience. I've got good news for you. There's something at the other side of the wilderness. If you don't decide wilderness is your destiny and, and sit there and stay there, you got to get up and you got to move on. So in Psalm 106, he goes back and he looks at the wilderness experience of the Israelites 
And he looks at their mistakes and their blunders and their doubt and their fears all the way along. There's a praise the Lord at the beginning of the journey. They got them out of Egypt and headed them toward the promised land. But between coming out of Egypt and the promised land is a wilderness experience. Have you tasted the wilderness? Everybody does. The only way to get to the promised land is to go through the wilderness. And wilderness is full of thorns and thistles and briars. Not a pleasant place. That's why we struggle. Some of us are here this morning because you're going through a struggle and you don't know where to find hope. There's always hope in God. So in verse 1, he starts out by laying a foundation of what, we, what he's going to talk about, what, what he wants us to know. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Three principles. Give thanks to the Lord. Always give thanks. Well, I don't like everything I'm going through. How can I give thanks when I'm going through things I don't like? You're giving thanks to the Lord. If you're going through some kind of hell in your life, blame that on the devil. Don't blame that on God. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good in his very nature. That's who he is. He wants to do good in our lives in this world. It's a dark world. Satan is the God of this world. Did you know the Bible says that? It's no wonder there's chaos and wilderness in your lifetime. But give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then the third principle, his love endures forever. There is no end. His love endures forever. How long is forever? Going to be around a lot longer than me. His love endures. What does endure mean? It means it puts up with. It endures. His love endures forever. God puts up with the resistance of Israel, the doubt of Israel, the rebellion of Israel, and he puts up with the doubt, the fear, and the rebellion of you and me. It endures forever. This is good news, church. So that said, I want to give you 10 steps, 10 things you need to know about how to survive in your wilderness experience. And we're pulling them out of this text, and obviously if I've got, I got 28 minutes to go, and I got 10 of these, so I got to move. Okay, here's number one. Retell his mighty acts. That's the first thing you need to do if you're going to survive in the wilderness. Retell his mighty acts. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. So he asked a question. Who is it that can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Who is it? He answers that in verse 3. Blessed are those who act justly and who always do what is right. We can reverse that. Everybody that does justly and who always does what is right can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord and fully declare his praise. You see, it's a, it's a give and take thing. It's, it's a sowing and reaping. It's what we give out comes back to us. If we live our life in a way that pleases him, then he steps into our life and brings his glory out in us. It may take a while because we're stumbling through the wilderness and we're full of resistance and rebellion and doubt, but we're going to get there. That's what our faith tells us. So we're talking about recalling Reminding ourselves of the personal intervention of Jesus Christ 
in our life. Think back to when it was that you first made a decision for Christ. Maybe it was Sunday school when you really didn't know what you were doing, but you said a sinner's prayer and you accepted Christ and invited his spirit into your life. You didn't know much theology, but you just knew God was tugging on your heart. That was the beginning of the journey. Yes. Maybe it was in a, uh, a Sunday school class or youth group or maybe in a big evangelistic rally or maybe, like me, it was in the privacy of your own home. Just you and God had this personal thing going. That was the beginning. Remember that. Here's the second thing we need to do if we're going to survive in the wilderness. We find it in verse 7. He says, When our ancestors were in Egypt... They gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Remember the story? God had just done this amazing thing. The death angel had just passed through Egypt, and the firstborn male in every family, animal and human, died. It was an attack against their God, which was ancestor worship. The firstborn was how you passed the blessing on to the next generation. So the firstborn of every family died. There was much grieving, but Israel didn't have one person die. They all lived because they had taken the antidote. They had put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house. And the angel saw the blood and passed over, the Bible says. So it was a miracle. Pharaoh finally says, okay, I give up. Go, get out of town. So all the Israelites marched out and they all headed toward this promised land. When they got to the Red Sea, they saw, how do we get across here? And they turned around and here they saw the Egyptian armies coming at them. And in fear, they said, it would be better for us to stay back there in bondage, in in captivity, than to come out here and be slain. Doubt. They had just seen a phenomenal miracle. God had just brought a breakthrough. And now they forgot the breakthrough already. Come on. We need to look back at the breakthroughs that God has yes. brought in your life. I, was, I knew what I was going to talk about. So as we were worshiping today, I was reflecting on that, what my life used to be and what my life is today. And I just got excited because it's the same God here this morning yes. that was with me way back then. Yes. And there's people here who are full of doubt and full of fear and full of confusion because you're going through your wilderness. And God wants to bring a breakthrough in your yes. life just like he did in mine. He's a good God. And his love never ends. So the second point, if you want to write it down, is remember his many kindnesses. The many times he's brought breakthrough in your life. As I look back on my life, I, I'm just so blessed. I have to tell you, I am so blessed. I'm blessed in my relationships. I mean, I actually get to know people like you. Amazing. Stories of grace. I get to know you. We're in the same boat. We're paddling the same canoe together. This is great. And I'm so thankful. Because there was once a time when I didn't have a relationship with anybody like you. I'm so glad today I do. I remember as many kindnesses, many breakthroughs in my own personal life. And therefore, I want to I encourage you. He wants to do the same kind of breakthrough in your life. Yes. Now, if you're in control of every corner of your life, God can't do much. That's right. 
You have to yield control of your life to him. You have to give up control of your finances to him. You have to give up control of your relationships with people and what people think about you. You have to give that up to God. Remember his many kindnesses because that's one of the attributes of God. He's kind. He knows what we're like. He knows what we deserve. And he gives us grace. Let's go to the third thing if you want to survive. It's in verses 12 and 13 where he says, Then they believed his promises and sang his praise, but they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. Reflect, here's the thing. Reflect on what he has done already in your life. It sounds like I'm repeating myself, but we're, 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 how do we reflect on it if we haven't heard it, if we haven't grabbed a hold of it? So sometimes I need to tell you. I need to reflect on what God's done in my life. You need to tell me what God's done in your life. We need to tell each other. This is testimony. This is what the Lord has done in our lives. Because when I hear what God's done in your life, it builds my faith. When we hear from one another what God's done in our life, it builds all our faith. We need to hear that. We need to hear those testimonies. The encounter night, we're going to hear some testimonies of what God's done. That's exciting. So reflect on what he's done. I want to give us an example. Uh, We support a lot of missionaries around the world, and we, we get reports, and mostly reports are not real exciting. It just... You know, just like the church in America, it's kind of mundane. Every now and then God does something cool. But I want to read this. This is a a story Rev C sent us from uh, Pastor John uh, Kawalanga. I'm guessing that's how you pronounce it, from uh, Zamba, Malawi. Uh, He said, from January through March, this pastor faithfully sought out individuals hoping to be able to share Christ and lead them to salvation. However, with all his effort, not even one Muslim, it's a Muslim territory, not even one Muslim was open to accepting Jesus as their Savior. Then it happened that when a Muslim woman became seriously ill, the family sought every possible means to find a cure for the sickness. In spite of all they tried, nothing was making any difference. The family was so distraught that someone from the family came to the pastor and asked him if he would come and pray to the de- for the dear woman as a last resort. As you might already expect, God heard his prayer, miraculously healed her, opening the door for more than 20 Muslims to come to faith in Christ. The family was so grateful that they gave the pastor a piece of land measuring 260 feet by 100 feet for them to build a church. This is the very first Christian church in this Muslim area. As most of the villagers are illiterate, he has started a literacy cl- he has started literacy classes so that the people will eventually be able to read the Bible. Amen. Wow. Yeah. This pastor needed a breakthrough to reach his community. Yes. God gave him the breakthrough. Now, God didn't reach the community. God gave him the breakthrough so he could reach the community. God will give you the breakthrough so you can do what he's called you to do. So expect that. And I hope I'm not just sharing some uh, obscure story that doesn't have any meaning for you. I hope it does. So reflect on what God has done. Here's here's number four. I got to move on. Number four. It's in verse 14. In the desert... 
they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So the fourth principle is resist your cravings. You know what cravings are? It's your emotions. Our emotions. We have, we have cravings. We have things we desire. We have things, especially if we are people with an addictive personality like I am. We have cravings and we chase down the things that we crave. We got to get that under control. My cravings are my worst enemy. And my cravings come from within, not from without. I can't blame the devil for my cravings. It's internal. It's in my soul. It's in here. I need to get my cravings under control. Israel got in trouble because they couldn't control their emotions. Your lusts are your emotions. Get your emotions under control. Find, and by that I don't mean turn into a statue. I don't mean suppress your feelings. What I mean is get your feelings sanctified. Get your feelings right with God. We Christians ought to be the most excited worshipers of anybody in the world of all religions. Nobody ought to be able to dance with joy like us Christians. But Satan wants to suppress us, tie our hands behind our back, make us think that those emotions are wrong. We just need to sanctify our emotions. Get them in line. Resist your cravings if you want to survive in the wilderness. Here's number five. It's in verse 10. He says, he saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. So the point is, refrain from vengeance. It was God that took care of the enemies. One of the biggest temptations we Christians have, when, since we, we don't have an, an enemy like some, some uh, governmental power trying to suppress us, that's, that's not our enemy. We have a spiritual enemy we can't see. And he manifests himself sometimes through people that we can see. So we think the people are our enemies. The people aren't our enemies. There, there are not very, really, there are not very many evil people in the world. There are some. They're just deceived people. Come on. Deceived people who manipulate, learn how to manipulate and control other people for their own ends. We need to refrain from vengeance. That's the point. I like a happy ending of getting even. It just seems like that's a happy ending. Somebody does something bad to me, I just, it would put a smile on my face to see the same kind of bad thing happen back to them. But you see, my problem is, if I carry out that action, if I become the one who takes vengeance, God just sits back on his throne and shakes his head. But if I stop the return of the evil, evil for evil. If I just stop it. Paul says it like this in the New Testament. Why are you going to court with one another? Aren't you Christians? What's the world going to think of your Christianity if you go to court with one another? Why do you not rather suffer the wrong? Telling us it's better for a Christian to suffer the wrong and let God take vengeance than it is for us to take our own vengeance. Now, that left everybody nice and quiet. Let me read it again. Let me emphasize something I don't want you to miss. He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. 
It was God that stepped into the picture. It was God that reversed things and turned things around. And God is the same God who wants to step into your life and turn things around if you let him do that. It's amazing. Okay, here's number six. We find it in verse 16. He says, in the camp, they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. Here's here's the sixth principle if you want to survive in the wilderness. Resist growing envious. We all know what envy is, don't we? We, we We had to battle that in elementary school. We were all jealous of somebody else who got better grades than we did or could run faster than us or hit the ball better than us. Being, being jealous of someone else, envious of someone else, competitive with other people, comparing ourselves with other, that's a human thing. We always do this. This is a, a part of what our humanity is. But maturity in a Christian is that we understand every individual has a relationship with God. And why should I be jealous of someone else who's at a different place than I am? You, you see this? I, I just need to realize that I have this personal walk with God and everything I do in my life is a test. And God's watching me to see how I will react. Yep. And if I react appropriately, if I react like a God would react, he'll bless me, puts favor in my life. If I don't, he lifts his blessing. And I can't survive without God's blessing. I have to have God's intervention in my life. I have to have him moving in my life all the time. And so do you if you recognize it. Resist getting growing. Growing, that's, an on, that's a progressive thing. Growing envious. To, have, to be envious of something, you know, a, a flash of envy, that's normal. Christians have that flash. The question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with that envy? And everybody has to deal with it. Pastors have to deal with it. You know, how do I deal with the church down the road that's having more success than I'm having? How do I deal with that? Everybody's got to deal with it. The Bible's full of envy. Rachel envied Leah because she had more kids than she did. King Saul envied David because he was more popular than he was. And Satan envies God because God's just more successful than he is. Get your eyes off other people. If you want to be successful in the wilderness, get your eyes off other people. It's it's all about you and your relationship with God. Don't worry about somebody else in their relationship with God. He'll take care of that. All right, here's number seven. Verses 19 through 21 says, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. The calf was a distraction. They were disappointed because Moses wasn't there to tell them what to do. So they did what seemed right in their own mind, and they made a calf out of metal, an image of something that eats grass. It's, this is humorous. It's supposed to be funny. 
He's exaggerating the case. Not really exaggerating because it is the truth. How can you worship a calf? But they were worshiping it. Made God mad. Made Moses mad. So he took the Ten Commandments that God had just given him and broke it. Representing they had broken the law God had given them. So the point is, refuse to get distracted. What's the main thing in your life as a Christian? Don't get distracted from that. Stay focused on the main yes. thing. One of my favorite stories of distraction, I, I told it about a year ago. I'll, I'll tell it again because some of you weren't here to hear it. <clears throat> it's, uh, it was in the World Series. don't remember what year, maybe six, 1967, something like that. Yogi Berra was a catcher for the New York Yankees. And Hank Aaron was one of the most powerful hitters uh, out there at the time. It was a World Series game. And Hank Aaron was up to bat. And every eye was on that batter. Yogi Berra was crouched down behind the plate. And as Yogi Berra came up, took his position, Yogi Berra started his famous mumbling. You're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to be able to hold that bat where you can read the label. You got you to get the label up. Hank Aaron just stood there. Ball came across home plate. He swung, hit that ball, connected. It was a home run. Hank Aaron run the bases all the way around, came back across home plate, and he mumbled. He said, I didn't come here to read. <laughs> what was Yogi Bear doing? Trying to distract him. Look at the bat. Get your eye on the bat. Focus on the bat. Because everybody knows if you're going to hit a home run, you've got to focus on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Don't get your eye off the ball. You and I as Christians, don't get your eyes off Jesus. Do not get your eyes off Jesus because Satan and the world and everybody in it are going to be trying to distract you to look over here, look over there, get your eyes on this. Look at this revival happening over there. Look at this teaching over here. Get your eyes off Jesus and you miss him. God help us keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So refuse to get distracted. Here's number eight. It's in verse 25. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. So my eighth principle, if you want to survive in the wilderness, is remove grumbling from your tent. You know, your tent is that place where you go home. Nobody's watching. Nobody's paying attention. It's where you let your hair down. You kick up the, the feet on the lazy boy. You relax. And you talk about what's really on your heart. Avoid grumbling in your tent. If you go to your tent and you grumble and growl and complain... Because I'll guarantee you there's plenty of things to complain about. There's plenty of things in our church to complain about. And if rather than saying, what can I do to fix this problem, we go home and gripe and complain about all the people who aren't doing anything to fix the problem, then we're going to miss it. Remove grumbling from your tent. I learned a lesson years ago <clears throat> before I was in ministry. I had been through Bible college. I had been ordained. But a door hadn't opened up for me to be a pastor. So I was working, providing for my family, working in a factory making hydraulic pumps. And I did not like that job. I felt it was beneath me. I felt like God had called me for something higher than this. And here, this is all I can do. And I grumbled. And I complained. And God would open up a little bit of a door over here and I would get to go interim in this, this church or I get to go preach in that church. 
I was a Sunday school superintendent in this church before I was the pastor. I was a youth, youth leader. I was involved, but God wasn't opening up that door. And I finally learned the hard way. If I'll be content where God's placed me, then God will move me on. How did I learn that lesson? The hard way. I had to learn, keep making those hydraulic pumps. Keep making the paycheck. Keep putting those things together. Keep witnessing to the people around me. Do what God's called me to do right here in this environment and be content with this position in my life. And when I finally became content, God opened a door, and here we are. The rest is history. So I'm challenging you. Be content right where God's placed you. You don't like your spouse? You think you got a rotten marriage? Be content right where God's placed you. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. So remove grumbling from your tent. Here's number nine. In verse 28 it says, They yoked themselves to the Baal, that's God, Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They intermarried with the people around them, and instead of, in, instead of influencing the people they're married to with their perspective of God, they allowed their worldly spouses to influence them with their perspective. And so they're sacrificing to other gods, worshiping other gods. That's a problem. Number nine is, if you want to be successful going through your wilderness... Reject yoking yourselves to other gods. You know what yoke means? It's what you do when you have two, two animals and you put a, a team, a gang, harness on the two of them so they pull together. That's yoking. In the New Testament, Paul calls marriage a yoke. Do not be unequally yoked. Don't put a big strong ox teamed up with a weak one. Don't put a spiritual person married up with a non-spiritual person because you have different goals in life. Neither one of you will be fulfilled. Make sure you have a common goal. So reject yoking yourselves to other gods. You know what a god is? A god is whatever is most important to you. It's what you sacrifice toward, what you give towards, what you, you, you purpose your life toward. That's your God. Did you know that your career can be your God? Don't let your career be your God. That should be secondary. Did you know that your body can be your God? Don't do that. This is just a vessel you have to work through. I'll guarantee you, one of these days, your body's going to get weak and die. That's not what you want to live for. You take care of your body because it's the only vessel you have to function through, but you don't worship it. Did you know that your ministry can be a God? I've known pastors who have lost everything because they made their ministry their God instead of being in submission to God. God wants to be what's most important to you. And here, finally, is number 10. The tenth thing, if you want to survive in the wilderness, we read it in verse 45. He says, For their sake, he, God, remembered his covenant, and out of his great love, he relented. 
God pushed. God prompted. God did whatever he could to bring those Israelites through to the promised land. He did everything he could to sell himself to them, everything he could to build them up. But they were stubborn, resistant. They wouldn't yield. And out of his great love, he relented. In other words, he would have wiped them out. He would have killed them all because they were so stubborn, so rebellious. But because of his great love, he took those rebellious people and brought them through to the promised land. This is good news for people here today that maybe are kind of stubborn. And you know you're not what you should be with God. In his, because of his great love. Did you know how great his love is? For God so loved the world, not the church. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's how much his great love is for you. God's not a God who measures our failures. He already knows we're sinners. The default position for all of us is hell. We need a savior. We need someone to redeem us. So God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and pay the price so that you and I could have life. That's his great love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how much his great love is. So the tenth principle is rely on his great love. And that will get you through the wilderness experience. Rely on him. Don't rely on yourself. Haven't we already learned that doesn't work? We have to rely on God. He wants to do something good in our life. Just a minute, we're going to sing a closing song. And as we do that, we have some folks that are going to be here at the altar to pray for people who are in a wilderness right now. And I want you to know what the words of the song is we're going to be singing. Can't go back to the beginning. You recognize that? You, You can't go back. Can't control what tomorrow will bring. Can't control the future either. But I know here in the middle is the place where you promise to be. I'm not enough unless you come. Will you meet me here again? Would that be your prayer? Because all I want is all you are. Will you meet me here again? Let's all stand together. And I'm going to ask those folks that, that uh, we've asked to pray to come to the altar, to be, to be available here. As we sing this song, I want to encourage you to come. Let these people pray with you. We are in a wilderness, aren't we? Do you feel it? This is, this is not heaven. It's nothing like heaven. There's tensions and pressures that we have down here that we're not going to have in heaven. This is nothing like heaven. But one of these days we're going to be at heaven. One of these days we're going to be there. And I sure want you to be with me. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to dance. We're going to have a celebration. It's going to be cool, church. When we get to heaven. In the meantime, this is a wilderness wandering. This is wilderness. But by faith, I like to think about what it's going to be when I get there.
And maybe you're going through a wilderness. The reason we want to pray, I'm going to ask those prayer warriors to come on up. Come on up here. When we get to heaven, what a day that will be. What rejoicing we're going to see. This is good news. If you're in a wilderness right now, don't go through it alone. Come to these folks. Let them pray God's blessing into your life. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we walk through the wilderness, you're going to give us your power to be able to stand tall. That we'll be able to take whatever resources are at our feet, even if it's five small stones, God, that we'll be able to pick them up. We'll be able to charge the wilderness and win on the other side. So God, just give us power to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.